Good afternoon uh, to all joining on the call uh, from India and uh, a very good morning to our UK uh, consumer team uh, and, and thank you very much for taking our time for this call. Uh, we have with us on the call uh, Alicia Foy, uh, UK, uh, UK consumer staples analyst as well as Kate and Ben uh, uh, who uh, you know uh, are retail analysts who look at uh, uh, you know the uh, overall retail space which includes grocery panels etc. Um, the purpose of this call was, uh, you know, to get their sense on, you know, uh, how uh, the environment in a post-COVID uh, situation is changing, especially, uh, you know, based on their discussions with uh, global uh, companies as well as what they're seeing in the market in the current environment. Uh, we'd like to start off first with uh, Alicia. Uh, to give her sense on, uh, uh, you know, what she's seen in the current context across her uh, key segments of, uh, you know, beverages, household personal care and tobacco. And we'll follow that up with, uh, you know, Kate and Ben's thought process on the same. Uh, over to you, Alicia. Thanks, Harit. Uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us uh, today. The uh, consumer staples Space is clearly pretty defensive uh, relative to some other sectors. So I think probably it's been uh, less impacted in some ways than, than some other um, areas that, that Kate and Ben will probably talk about. But that being said, there are pockets of real weakness that we've seen emerging during this crisis, and that's primarily the categories and products that are more exposed to out-of-home consumption, so anything like a restaurant or bar uh, environment, which has obviously been uh, shut down during during various lockdowns around the world. Uh, but not only restaurants and bars, also school cafeterias, uh, office canteens uh, for countries that have these things, and uh, things like uh, rock concerts or um, festivals, places where you might buy uh, a beverage or maybe an ice cream uh, that, that are just shut down. So if I look at the space of, of consumer staples that I cover, the, the sort of most defensive end of the spectrum would be uh, tobacco, uh, then uh, household and personal care is obviously seeing a lot of demand for cleaning products. Uh, food is uh, seeing, for the most part, uh, resilient growth. Anyone who's got a lot of exposure to out-of-home channels that I just described is obviously seeing headwinds there. But elsewhere, in the off-trade, in the supermarkets, they're seeing good demand. People uh, continue to stock up their pantries and eat at home, so pretty resilient there. At the negative end or at the more challenged end of the spectrum, you've got um, soft drinks and alcohol, and those are really the hardest hit uh, areas of consumer staples that we've that we've seen so far. Uh, but even though we're seeing some pretty dramatic declines in that weak end of the spectrum, and we can dig into that uh, in in just a few minutes, um, the the real sharp drop-off in sales that we're seeing there has not necessitated any major capital raisings. So we haven't seen any consumer staples companies come to the market and raise additional equity. They've largely absorbed this sharp decline uh, in uh, 
sales during the last few months with uh, the addition of revolving credit facilities, bond issuances. They've been really active in the debt capital markets in the last sort of six weeks and at pretty low interest rates, too. So I think that's, again, an indication of just how resilient these categories are viewed by investors. Deals are remarkably still happening, small ones, of course, but it does reflect confidence uh, in on the part of you know the, the boards of these companies that they are still prepared to make small targeted uh, acquisitions. So I would say overall the message from consumer staples thus far in the crisis is yes, there are some parts that are badly hit, but overall it's a resilient business. It's expected to bounce back pretty quickly, and the dip is likely to be not as um, dramatic as for some other uh, sectors. I don't know if you uh, want to perhaps contrast that even then with uh, what the impact has been for retail. Sure. Thanks, thanks Alicia. Um, I think in uh, retail, obviously, the picture is very mixed depending on which product category um, you are in. Uh, coming into um, the crisis, the sector was probably running at a low single-digit growth rate. Um, and then in March, um, you started to see quite a lot of stockpiling, um, particularly within the, uh, the, the food retail sector, where in March, food retail sales, for example, were up 12.4% year-on-year. Um, overall, the whole retail sector was down um, 2%. And I think if you look at non-food in March, it was down 14%. Um, percent. And what happened, and the key date was the 23rd of March, was when the UK went into lockdown. Um, and that was the came right at the end of March. Now, in April when the sector um, was locked down for the whole period, retail sales collapsed um, and they were down 19% in, in April, um, with food retail still up um, 5.8%, but obviously some of the stockpiling had been done, um, but on the non-food side it was down nearly 40%. So you've seen a dramatic diversion um, um, between um, food um, and non-food. And, I mean, Ben, I don't know if you want to pick up on some of the um, sort of short-term winners and losers. Yeah, sure. I mean, as Kate says, there's been quite a divergence in, in you know, um, what's been occurring with the trends. You've seen, for example, those of online operations like Amazon and Argos perform extremely well. Uh, the supermarkets who've been allowed to stay open have obviously seen a, a great boost to their volumes. Um, and even those, you know, um, you know, like discounters too have performed extremely well. Um, you've also seen some sort of fairly, um, I guess, trends you wouldn't have initially thought of, such as bikes have done incredibly well. But a lot of people biking has been poor forward of demand uh, there too. And even things like DIY and homewares, because people are spending more time at home, um, you know, they they can uh, they want to spend time doing up their houses. Um, and, and, and as another sort of category in terms of price, you know, things like alcohol has been doing extremely well where you can buy it online. Um, uh, and in, in America, you see things like guns go up and in, in Germany, hygiene products. So sort of characteristics of each nation's um, sort of pre-directions, as it were. 
Um, the losers, however, have been um, proving clearly, um, and there's certainly been a divergence of performance between those who have what we call long lead times and short lead times, with the short lead time players winning. Uh, the clearly big ticket cars and furniture, that, that suffered a lot. The aftermath of lockdown as we come into this environment where we're beginning to open up retail, which is um, stores are expected to start to open up in mid-June, is going to pose new problems in terms of operating under social distancing, where people are going to have to abide by keeping a two-metre distance. Um, ironically, that actually poses a problem more for those retailers with high sales densities um, who rely on a lot of transactions, such as a, a uh, you know a, a Greg store, for example, that sells sandwiches at lunch, because um, it's simply very hard to actually serve as many customers as they used to, given they have high operational gearing that, that poses a problem. Whereas a low sales density operator like a, a DIY store that's out of town, they, that, the, the issue of social distancing doesn't pose so much of a problem. Um, but in general, um, will this change retail forever? Uh, obviously, people are working from home more often, and there's going to be less commuting. So there is a sort of thinking that um, you know, consumerism may change and retail the way we shop. Um, but I think at the same time, we need to be realistic here. At the end of the day, people enjoy seeing their colleagues in offices, and they enjoy the interaction when they go shopping. So I think uh, you know there, there will eventually be a resumption to the trends that we've seen prior to the virus outbreaking. Um, and maybe Kate, you, you probably have some thoughts on the sort of longer term views or retail sector. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think when you when you look at the UK retail sector and, and even um, Europe and, and and states, that the environment's been challenging um, for the for the retailers um, for some while. There are a number of structural trends um, which we definitely think um, will accelerate under lockdown. I mean, for example, the structural shift online. Um, During this period, you see most traditional retailers, um, online businesses at least double um, as the penetration within the UK market. I mean, online um, in terms of non-food was running at um, around 30%. Um, of overall sales, and that is bound um, to accelerate. I think what you also uh, will see is quite a seismic shift in the property market. Um, A lot of retailers are rethinking um, the composition of their space. Um, Quite a lot of stores may not open, Um, and certainly those retailers that have been in a reasonably distressed business are likely um, to go into administration. And retailers are being very aggressive, aggressive with landlords. Um, only a third of retailers paid um, their rent um, in March. Um, and the UK still has this um, sort of quarterly rent um, where you pay your rent three months up in, 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 in advance. Um, now, the next quarterly rent day is um, in June. Um, and the feeling very much is that quarterly rents have gone forever. Um, people will start paying monthly. They're likely to become more turnover um, related um, as well. And I think as a result of the structural challenges and also what's going on in the property market, certainly the wholesale channel um, continues to lose doors. So a lot of independents and department store players um, are likely to go out of business. Um, And you've seen a lot of the large U.S. department stores um, going into administration 
Um, within the UK, we've had Debenhams also go into administration. And that's also, um, you know, partly a knock-on effect from the fact that brands are trying to take back control um, of their wholesale channels. So, you know, if you follow Nike and Adidas, for example, um, and some of the luxury players, um, they that's been a, an ongoing trend for a while that, um, you know, they want to distribute through fewer wholesale partners. Um, and in the other two themes I think I'd probably pick out for you are, are things like market consolidation. Um, you're going to see more M&A, um, and certainly um, a couple of players have raised money in the UK um, in anticipation of opportunities coming up. Um, and I think more relevant, um, I guess, to your side of the world would be the rethink on um, the supplier base. Um, certainly, um, retailers in Europe are shifting to becoming more locally sourced. And I think, um, as Ben's already touched on, that those who have the most efficient and responsive supply chains have um, been in a stronger position going through this. But we're at a stage now where um, the industry um, probably has refinanced itself. We've had six retailers in the UK raise capital. Um, uh, with one of them in particular, Boohoo, which is the online clothing retailer, raising 200 million in, in anticipation of looking to buy brands um, across the world. Um, but I think ultimately, I mean, our, our conclusion very much is um, that, you know, those attributes that have made a successful retailer historically, um, they've always stood the test of time. And, and those who understand their customers and stay relevant with a nice differentiated, inspiring offer are likely to come out of this. Um, in a much um, stronger position. What really has changed over time is the, the method of delivery, and as I've sort of touched on already, that uh, you know this shift online is going to continue. So, I mean, that I think really sort of concludes where we see things um, at the moment. Hajit. Yeah, thank you very much for this. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you very much for this. Uh, um, uh, what, what we'll do is I'll just take a few questions that I, I had in mind and then we can open the floor for Q&A. Uh, my first, uh, you know, question was really to the entire team. I mean, just wanted to get your sense that, you know, given that, you know, you do cover a lot of the global players, uh, you know, any, you know, kind of touch points that you are getting from markets like China or, or you know, some of the markets where probably, you know, things are starting to, well, just move towards the direction of normal, you know, even some of the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the developed market businesses where, you know, in markets like Germany, etc., things are kind of moving towards a slightly more normal environment. So any kind of, uh, you know, uh, you take away from there? Uh, um, sure, I, I can go on, on staples. Um, I mean, clearly all the, the companies that I cover pretty much have, have some, uh, significant exposure to China, and I would say that the message from most of them has been it's a very slow recovery. So although people are finally out of lockdown and allowed to go back to the office, there isn't a pickup in socializing, or at least the pickup in socializing has been less dramatic than the companies might have expected. So people are reluctant to eat out. They bring their food with them to the office. They don't go for after-work drinks uh, so much with their co-workers. What they have seen a rise in, which is kind of interesting, is 
uh, the catering of small parties in people's apartments or small groups of friends meeting. It's a way to socialize without kind of going out and potentially coming into contact with a whole bunch of strangers at a restaurant. So that is an interesting new development that the companies are adapting their product offerings for. Across the world, they're seeing demand very slowly improving, and also in many markets, the shift to online has been pretty significant for the staples categories, especially product categories that weren't typically big on online before. And so that is really, I think, accelerating the shift of the categories that already were online. They're swinging even more to that channel, and those which really weren't having much of a presence online, that is now a permanent shift, even as lockdown uh, has has eased and, and people are more free to move around in some markets, uh, like, like in Europe. So that is uh, definitely something that, that the companies are seeing and that they expect will be a, a permanent feature. But as far as a return to normalcy, I don't think any of the companies have experienced that in any of the markets around the world that have, that have emerged from lockdown. It's still a very, very slow um, recovery. I don't know if it's um, any different in retail, Kate yeah, I think of the of the retail side. Um, I mean, in terms of um, China and what they've seen there, um, certainly the likes of um, the luxury companies have reported um, a return to normal sales levels um, within store pretty quickly. What we don't know at the moment, and I suspect it really is a trend, is a lot of the um, repatriation of spending. Um, within China um, because the Chinese are no longer um, traveling and obviously a massive driver of luxury within Europe um, was the Chinese tourists. So um, that expenditure has, has definitely shifted back to the mainland um, and that is, um, I would have thought, a trend that's likely to, um, um, to, to remain pretty permanent for some of that. Um, also, you've seen, um, um, as Alicia's already talked about, is the shift on, on online, um, and again, that's remained at much higher levels. I mean, certainly Nike, Addy, um, and the luxury guys actually reported quite a significant increase in their online, um, and, and they have been able to maintain that, um, despite the fact that stores have returned to sort of more normal levels. Um, within Europe, um, what they're generally seeing there, and, and I suppose Germany is one of the leading countries, um, it's only about three weeks of experiences that footfall is quite significantly down. Um, so again, online has held up and, and, and um, kept a lot of its gains. Um, it tends to be that, that those shops which have a street front um, are actually performing better um, within Europe than shopping centres. People are still very wary um, of shopping centres, and I think with social distancing, you know, do you want to queue to go into a shopping centre and then have to queue to go into the shop? Um, but what people are saying is conversion is a lot stronger because people know what they want to go and um, buy, so they're shopping with purpose. Um, what's interesting in the States, and again, is even um, very little information there because there's only been about a week in the States, but um, it's actually that shopping centres are doing a lot better there 
Um, again, probably because uh, social distancing um, is much easier to enforce because shops are a lot larger um, and football um, isn't um, um, as, as strong. Um, so, I mean, those are the, the kind of things that um, we're seeing at the moment. I think as it came, she sort of touched on as well, is that certainly within clothing, you're seeing shoppers when they do shop have much larger baskets uh, rather than shopping more frequently with smaller baskets. So there's a sort of additional dynamic going on in that, and even small cafe chains uh, chains as well as just seeing in Evans about strangely, because we there's a limit to how much you would want to consume in one transaction. But uh, certainly within clothing, the more, um, you know, there's been this dynamic of much larger baskets, but shopping less frequently. I suppose the other point to add is that, that we're coming out a lot more aggressively in terms of discounting as well. Um, the nature of when COVID hit Europe is it's completely wiped out the spring-summer collection um, for these retailers, so um, there's a huge stock overhang to clear, um, and the retailers are coming out with a lot more promotional activity. And sorting out the stock within clothing is probably going to take over a year, so a lot of these retailers have been cutting back on future orders as well. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, just had a couple of specific ones. Uh, um, the, you know, one was to Alicia. You know, you mentioned in your uh, in opening remarks that you know tobacco is typically you know more defensive in nature. Uh, but you know, given the uh, you know uh, nature of the of the of the virus that we are facing, uh, you know, is there a view that uh, you know uh, the cigarette businesses? could be a little more impacted over the medium term, given the fact that it's a more respiratory kind of a disorder. Uh, I just wanted to know what, you know what companies have been saying and what you think about that. Yes, it's, that's an interesting um, question. I think what what is interesting as well is there's been a study done in France, I think it was, which showed that there's basically a, a correlation between if you are a smoker, you are less likely to get uh, the disease, which is, seems counterintuitive. Um, but perhaps there is, you know, some reason that smokers have built up maybe more resistant lungs, are able to fight off uh, foreign um viruses more easily, I guess, than, than people who don't have sort of hardened lungs in that way. It's very early days on this. They're still studying it. So um, I, I wouldn't want to um, uh, take a view on this at all. But it is an interesting development that I think there will be some, some more studies done on. I think what they are finding is that once a smoker does Succumb to the to the disease, although they're less likely to. Once they do succumb to the disease, their their outcomes are are more negative. So um, you know there there are underlying uh, you know, health issues that, that smoking brings, uh, which don't um, well, which serve to accelerate um, the disease and its impact on the body. So so it's uh, clearly not a not a good thing and. Um, Governments are definitely taking a closer look at whether tobacco should be banned. So um, most notably in South Africa, the government has, in addition to banning alcohol, also banned 
cigarettes uh, for, for just this, this very reason that, that you suggest, Trait. And that has given rise to a massive um, black market there where people are just, you know, buying from each other at huge premiums. Whoever's got, uh, you know, cartons in their, in their cupboard is making a lot of money. So I don't think these are likely to be long-lived restrictions, um, and other markets certainly are not taking this view. South Africa is very much uh, the exception here. Most governments recognize that these products are essential items to people who are addicted to them. So they're allowing uh, tobacco shops to stay open during during this uh, during this lockdown period and the case across Europe uh, and uh, in the U.S. and most most countries have accepted that people really need to have access to their to their tobacco products. So I think it's definitely an interesting conundrum, but for the time being, we're really seeing no major change in, in trends for tobacco. Interesting. Uh, just a follow-up on that was that, uh, you know, it's, uh, a, a, you know, similar kind of, a, a, you know, thin kind of category like, uh, you know, alcoholic beverages, uh, the liquor space. Uh, you know, uh, given the fact that, you know, the uh, uh, out-of-home consumption is lower, but probably the in-home, in-home consumption is, uh, you know, kind of increased, uh, you know, how, how would you be seeing those trends? Do you still believe on a on a net-net perspective, there would be still loss of demand, at least in the near to medium term for the sector? Yes, this is the, the area of staples, which is really the hardest hit, as I mentioned earlier. And the problem is that the shift from consuming a product, an alcoholic beverage, on-premise to consuming it at home, having bought it from the supermarket, is that you pay a lot less when you go to the supermarket and the manufacturer tends to make less on an off-trade sale than they do in in an on-trade sale. So not only is this just that people buy more basic products when they're consuming at home versus consuming at a restaurant, so the mix of product is, is a lower price per unit usually, but also the margins are, are slightly different for the, for the manufacturer. So what we've been seeing with the major international um, spirits companies is that, and, and beer companies as well, is that sales during these hard-hit months, like March, April, um, sales have been down anywhere 30 to 50% year-on-year for the companies, and that's even after you're taking account of the uplift in, you know, sales at supermarkets for them. So it is it is bad uh, for them, but it's likely to be a pretty uh, temporary situation uh, once uh, restaurants and bars start to open up. Of course, it will be a very slow recovery because they'll be less full than they were before. People will be seated farther apart from each other. And there may be some reluctance to return to these outlets, but uh, clearly alcohol companies are going to be in for you know, several quarters of a very weak performance. 
Got it, got it. Uh, just one question to Kaden then before I open it up for the, uh, uh, you know, to the queue. Uh, was that, uh, you mentioned about, uh, you know, the clothing sector and, and the fact that, you know, the inventory is the biggest challenge in the current context. The season has gone by and, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, you have, you're, you're stuck with, uh, uh, you know, uh, pretty much what you could call deadish inventory. Uh, I just just wanted to get your sense uh, uh, on you know how companies are being able to manage this challenge and uh, uh, the context is that you know Indian retailers are only now starting to open up uh, you know and uh, uh, they're probably going to over over a period of the next few weeks. So you know based on your experiences, you know how how have uh, you know the clothing retailers been able to manage this uh, you know this challenge of handling their stock and then getting new uh, having to make new inventory for the new season. and then on the grocery retail side, uh, just wanted to get your sense on, you know, uh, you know, as you said that, uh, uh, you know, while, uh, you know, the supermarkets have, uh, you know, saw a bit of an upstocking benefit, but, uh, you know, going into the next, say, you know, three to six months, given that social distancing might be a challenge, do you see, a, uh, you know, a different way in which some of these supermarket chains, you know, are, uh, you know, do business in terms of either, you know, some, some like an omni-channel or, you know, taking the help of e-commerce, etc. I just wanted to get your thought on that. Yeah, I'll play that then. 
Um, from the grocery side, um, as um, we talked about earlier, that there was a massive pull forward um, in March. Um, and what you have seen is a significant um, switch online, um, and the food retailers have upped their capacity for online um, delivery. Now, one of the bigger issues um, out there at the moment is a lot of this capacity is being used for the vulnerable, um, which are the elderly or those with a health condition um, who can't actually go to the supermarket. Um, and the shift online is something that is, um, has been incredibly expensive. So despite the fact that they have seen an uplift um, in volumes, um, that any sort of profit benefit has been offset um, by, A, the, the much higher cost of um, operating um, an online operation, but also all the expenditure on PPE, um, and introducing social distancing um, within stores where you can't actually physically um, process people um, as quickly as before. And what I think you're, you're finding now is that actually for quite a few stores, um, the volumes will be dropping off um, year on year because of that shift. People have tended to shift to more local shopping, um, so our more convenience offers um, have been significantly outperforming it, as have independent um, local stores um, just because of the complexity of trying to get into a, um, a, a full line supermarket stroke hypermarket um, and also trying to get a slot online. So yes, I think there are a lot of people who have tried online shopping for the first time um, and certainly um, I do think that will have switched but actually it isn't necessarily in the economic interest of companies to people to switch online because it is a less profitable um, channel for them. Um, so uh, those are those are some of the trends that one has um, seen in terms of the switch there. Um, and I think definitely it will be um, it will be harder um, over the next quarter or so um, for the food retailers because they've literally got to try and balance um, the sales um, with their costs. Um, and it's, you know, you've got to, to maintain the service levels there. So um, we would expect um, them to become less profitable over the next couple of quarters, I would say, um, because of having to maintain some of this social distancing costs and not necessarily having the same volume uplift um, as they have had. And I think also when you find that some of the non-food shops start opening, so you know, some people may have been picking up some of their health and beauty, for example, in supermarkets. That could well switch back um, towards some more of the um, um, the high street um, stores as well. Very broad question in terms of uh, understanding the consumer psychology. In terms of changing environment and the way they spend money or the way they the way they do, used to be shopping in the past, what is how the things will change going forward. Do you see any type of uh, changes in terms of capex done by all these retailers or the way they have to keep in mind the social distancing and other stuff? Do you see their, their return ratios will be impacted because they need to be uh, uh, much more spacious uh, in terms of the racks and the things which they keep in the, in the shop and number of people walking in and conversion also goes down. So I'm just trying to understand the 
होल इकोनॉमिक बिहाइंड ऑन गोइंग और गोइंग फॉरवर्ड कैपेक्ट ऑफ ऑल दिस रिटेलर वॉट इज यू ऑन दिस थिंग फॉर दी टू फाइव इन In terms of the OPEX, which you rightly mentioned, is there any trend which you are seeing that uh, some of the retailers are going to see that tenants and asking for renegotiating their rentals and uh, or other kind of fixed uh, cost structure in terms of ANCs and also what I'm trying to understand is that you have a two part of expenses. One is your rental which you pay, and there is another part which is your ANC which you have for various uh, fixtures and things like the air conditioning and all. Which which you have a fixed overhead, uh, whether it gets spoiled or not. So do you see any kind of impact happening over there in terms of saving some cost and try to manage the margins? Uh, I'm just trying to get a domino effect of this on a other related activity which is surrounded to this uh, business, not just the retail themselves. Well, certainly at the moment in the UK, there's a structural trend now where. The retailers will be negotiating very hard with landlords um, about their rents, and they will be expecting concessions. Um, and they can do that because they, they know that one in ten retailers in the UK simply don't believe they will be able to get through this, and mm-hmm. therefore can use what is known as a CVA to threaten them. But those retailers that can't use the CVA to threaten them, they know that they're also in a strong position to ask for renegotiation of rents. And there's a general move to perhaps turn over, well, there will perhaps be a general move towards turnover-related rents and perhaps paying monthly. So certainly on the, on the rent side, there's, there's levers they can pull. Um, and as I alluded to in labour, 
they will be naturally trying to reduce contracted hours. Um, they will be possibly reducing numbers of people required in stores where if they can. And if it's simply not viable, then I guess the ultimate thing is they will close stores where it's not economic to stay open. So those are some of the, the fixed costs. So in, can, you, can you think of other yeah, ways? Yeah, I think the other thing that yeah, the other thing to highlight is the government is actually still offering support in terms of salaries. So um, we have this furlough scheme um, where the government's paying up to 80% of people's salaries um, up to a maximum of £2,500 a month. So the retailers don't have to bring all their staff back immediately. They can leave some on furlough. Um, and over the next couple of months, the amount that... Um, the uh, retailers will get back will decline and then I think what becomes interesting is from um, October when the scheme sort of is due to end at the moment is that there could be a significant number um, of uh, redundancies uh, within the industry depending on where sales have got to. I think the other thing you have to, re- you have to um, also remember is the importance of key trading periods like Christmas. Um, a lot of these retailers make their money around Christmas. So if they can see that demand has recovered sufficiently that they might not have too bad a Christmas, um, they'll probably um, go and trade through that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think we're expecting a whole load more um, stores not to open um, again or to be closed again if they're just completely unprofitable and to return the keys to landlords. So you don't want to be a landlord um, in the current environment, that's for sure. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Uh, so just uh, one, one or two more things. Uh, one is, uh, you know, based on, you know, uh, uh, what you've uh, seen over the last two months or so, um, you know, at an aggregate level, I mean, how are you building, uh, you know, uh, uh, category or sector growth from here on? I mean, the next day, 12 months or the next 18 months or so, or in your estimates when you build, build a CY, uh, you know, kind of a number uh, for, you know, for uh, the sectors that you cover. I mean, uh, you know, what was, say, a pre-COVID growth versus, you know, what is in this environment, you know, what's the kind of degrowth, per se, that you would be building in them, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure if you could go at it, uh, you know, in terms of what, what you're building in now, given that you've seen, uh, uh, you know, numbers also for the last two months or so. Um, I can kick off on that one. Um, I think, again, it's, it's going to be very different across the different areas of consumer staples. So I would say um, tobacco first, which is perhaps the easiest one. I mean, there's really only been about a 1% to 2% kind of stocking up boost, which the companies then expect will reverse in H2. And... H2 of the calendar year, that is. And um, going forward, we wouldn't expect any significant change to medium-term growth rates for tobacco, which are in the range, depending on the, the company, but sort of between 3 to 5% organic sales growth. Um, that's, I think, still a reasonable assumption. Um, food, uh, as I said, is uh, kind of seeing a, a flattish impact where, you know, the loss of some products that sell in convenience and impulse channels that aren't 
um, being used as much now is being offset by growth in, in supermarkets. So I would say probably, uh, you know, again, it depends on the category of food, but but on average, you know, sort of a, a low single-digit uh, 3% growth rate is probably reasonable to assume over the, um, you know, next 12 to 18 months, i.e. no significant uh, difference, but perhaps slightly stronger than what they were growing at before, which is more like two and a half. Um, household and personal care, that's seeing um, about a 5% boost to uh, companies that have, you know, good exposure to hygiene products. That the companies do think is going to stick around, i.e. people will just be cleaning more frequently going forward. So we wouldn't expect a sort of massive drop-off, but probably, you know, we're looking at something where, you know, HPC might have been growing around 4 to 5%, and maybe now it'll grow more like 6% um, over, the, over the near term. Uh, soft drinks, that is seeing, um, you know, pretty sharp decline, but again, very short shelf life on these products. So once people do come out of lockdown and the whole on-trade channel has to reorder their, their soft drinks uh, products to, to have available, even if you're selling to less people, you're still going to see, I think, a bit of a, a boost in, in each two of, of this calendar 2020 year. So. I think we're probably looking at a return to kind of pre-crisis growth rate of, you know, about 5% for soft drinks uh, by the beginning of 2021. Um, Alcohol, I think, is going to take a longer time to cycle through, particularly, well, shelf life. Uh, is longer for spirits, so beer might might bounce back sooner. But I'm expecting uh, two years of negative sales growth for alcohol for um, excuse me spirits companies. They have been growing organic sales about five percent before the crisis, and now I think they'll be down, um, you know, roughly ten percent this year, and then down one-ish percent the next year before they return. Uh, to around 5%, so that's a longer recovery period. I think beer will probably be down uh, about high single digits, probably percentage uh, organic sales in calendar 2020, and then might return to growth in 2021 of um, maybe up mid-single digits, because again, shelf life is, is shorter. You need your beer to be fresh. Um, it's only got about a 90-day window. So I think we will see a return to kind of mid-single digits, 4 to 5% organic sales growth, because longer term I don't see the demand for alcohol to be any significantly different to what it was before the crisis. It's just um, going to be disruptive for a, for a short period of time. Great, on, the, um, uh, on the on the retail side, I mean, certainly for food, um, 
we would, uh, I mean, food tends to sort of run around sort of 1% to 2% um, growth. Um, so I, I, I would expect it to re- re- resume to that reasonably quickly. Um, in terms of the non-food side, um, certainly after the initial shock of, um, of stores generally closing, um, online tends to have been um, such that most retailers have been probably getting about 20 to 30% of their um, normal sales online. In forecasting, we're probably looking at um, sales to be down 50% for the next three or so months while people work out the social distancing um, and start to pick up and then probably down kind of 10% or so um, for the rest of the year. Um, I would say that um, as the government support comes off in terms of salaries, I would expect a massive jump um, in unemployment um, and so I would think the customer is going to be in a very difficult position going into 2021. Um, particularly as far as big ticket items are concerned, so that's your sort of furniture um, um, and cars. Um, uh, So I would expect those to be in in quite a difficult position. So actually, interestingly, um, if people don't want to use public transport, um, they may be looking to buy um, um, some cars. But, you know, I think that depends on, on, on where unemployment ends up. Um, and certainly, I think clothing will continue to struggle well into um, well into 2021 20, um, as, as as people look to clear stock. So, the prospect of UK retail getting back to the sort of levels of sales um, that we saw in 2019, will you know, I think that will probably happen within um, you know, it'll probably take two years. So, pretty similar to this year in terms of um, what she's seeing in her area. That's that's very helpful. Uh, 